Do you feel more prepared to be a caregiver the second time around? Or even the third? No, 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 not the fourth. Stay tuned. You might be surprised. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your M.O. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight. There is a better road ahead. Hello, everybody. It's Nancy May from Doing It Best at Elder Care Success. And I have back with me today, well, maybe not these two ladies back with me, but I have my friends from the Yale School of Public Health. These guys, uh, guys, gals, I should say, are fabulous. And I shouldn't say gals because that makes me sound really old, but (laughs) I'm not that old. But the Yale School of Public Health has been doing some amazing work on the whole area of Alzheimer's, caregiving, dementia, and and what impacts us as caregivers in our lives and those that we take care of as well. My guest here today, or my guests here today, are Dr. Emily Morose, who's a researcher in the section of geriatrics at the Yale School of Medicine and an affiliate of the Social Gerontology and Health Lab at the Yale School of Public Health. She's also been working with and learning from caregivers in home hospice and hospice facilities in the hospital and in lab-based settings for nearly a decade now. Her research focuses on personal narratives that caregivers and patients and clinicians construct from live experiences and how these narratives can actually impact and actually hopefully improve the guidance of healthcare outcomes for all of us. Our second guest or additional guest is Amanda Picote, who is also working with Emily and is a friend of or a colleague of my friend, Dr. and Professor Joan Monin at the School of Gerontology and the Health Lab at Yale. So my applause to, yay, we should put a sound break in the back on that one, (laughs) to both of you for tackling the issue of gerontology, because there aren't as many people going into this space as you may all know or not know about it. But we're going to jump into the research that they have really just recently released, which is titled Been There, Done That. And it's all about caregivers who have taken care of somebody and are now in the process of taking care of a second or third, even fourth person, and how prepared they are to do this round du, if um, my French gets me correct. But... (laughs) You know, all like seriousness and not a lot of fun doesn't get us anywhere. So with that, let's just dive into some of the study work that you've been doing and the the outcome of the study, Emily, and tell us like, what are some of the key findings that have come out of this? Great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nancy, for having this. This is so fantastic. um, I've been really excited to do this work because the foundations of this work and the foundations of a lot of good research projects, particularly in, in gerontology and aging studies, are to do qualitative projects where you you actually work in interview settings with people who have had the lived experiences, in this case, of being caregivers for persons with dementia. And so this study was a qualitative study, which means that we did these really long one-on-one interviews, sometimes an hour or two hours long, with caregivers, where I heard about their experiences as caregivers, what a typical day looked like for them, 
I heard some specific stories that they told about or personal narratives that they told about their care experiences. And then we went into asking questions about how prepared they were to be caregivers to loved ones again in the future. Some of the participants were already caregivers again for a second or third or fourth loved one. And then others were just kind of thinking ahead to people in the future who they might need to take care of. And the goal was to think about and sort of answer this question in a very basic and open way of if you've been a caregiver for a person, in this case for a parent who had advanced dementia or Alzheimer's disease, were you better prepared to be a caregiver for a person with dementia or from some other disease again in the future? I think societally we have this expectation that the answer is yes, that sort of necessarily because you've already been a caregiver again in the past, you're going to be more prepared to do it again in the future, to be a caregiver. Well, and that kind of makes sense, right? And anything we've been taught growing up, it's repetition makes us better at doing that process time and time again, whether it's tying your shoes as a five-year-old or doing a process analysis in a corporation. It shouldn't be different, but it is different. It is different. Because not every person is the same. Yeah, and so that was sort of the been there, done that mentality that we saw in this study where for some people, Ultimately, that was the idea. I've done it before, I can do it again. And so it kind of fit with our expectation socially that, yes, there's some people out there who, because they were caregivers, and we can talk about that a little more, but because they've been caregivers in the past, and and especially in the recent past, they felt really confident and able and prepared to be a caregiver again in the future. But then we talked to other caregivers who did not have the same perspective and who gave us sort of this more nuanced understanding of, It's not true for all caregivers that just because you've been a caregiver before, you feel ready and prepared and excited to be in that role again. There's a lot more nuance. Tackle the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's a lot more nuanced than that. And there's a lot of other factors in play in terms of what makes someone feel prepared, in what ways they are prepared, and whether or not they look forward to or are apprehensive of a new care role in the future. So Amanda, what sort of surprising things did you come up with out of this? It was really rewarding to hear about families' experiences from first noticing symptoms, realizing maybe their symptoms. Emily interviewed families on their entire journey. And um, so it's a really rich data set. So finding diagnoses, um, experiences with the healthcare process in between, finding the right doctors, finding the right help, family transitions and dynamics that changed during this time, just being in the thick of it, the most difficult parts of caregiving and some of the rewarding parts of the caregiving, and then kind of processing what this means after and what it means for moving forward. So within there, there were lots of surprising things to hear from the first time. And then there were a lot of things that I had seen kind of so far in my experience that continue to ring true for caregivers. And I think something that's really interesting about this is, you know, everyone has a different baseline relationship with their loved one, and that's going to impact your experience moving forward. So Emily, Amanda had mentioned the family dynamics. How frequently did that impact, or did you even discuss it, the relationship in being prepared for round two? 
Exactly. Yeah, that was a great one of the things that we discovered when we did this work is, again, people talked about being prepared to be caregivers again in the future in lots of different ways. Some people felt wholly prepared no matter what's ahead. I, I, I know that I'm confident that I can do a good job again. Some people bring felt it on. right. Bring it on. Been there, done that. Some people felt wholly unprepared, saying, you know, no matter what it is, there's no there's no way. But we also had this group that we called caregivers who had restricted confidence who described that they mm, they had done it, they know that they had learned lessons, they know that they had insights from their former care roles, but they were apprehensive of uh, future care roles, particularly in some cases, if the social dynamic was different. So for example, these were all caregivers who had taken care of a parent, and they said, because this was my parent, this was my experience. However, if I had to take care of someone like a spouse or a sibling, the experience is so different that I feel like I have to basically relearn how to do it, or I, it's going to be a, have a different set of sort of considerations or constraints. Other people talked about how maybe this was a, a female caregiver caring for her mom, and she said that that felt natural and that felt comfortable. But if she had to take care of her dad, the role would be so different that she didn't necessarily feel confident that she could do that again in the future. And again, this was just one type of caregivers who showed this restricted confidence, but it's true. Relationship between the person who you cared for in the past and the person you might have to care for in the future plays a big role, whether that's congruent, how those things are different, not only in terms of the nature of the relationship, like a parent or a spouse or so or whoever, but also the closeness that you feel in the relationship. How close are you to this person? Is there conflict already in the relationship prior to that caregiving? That is a big thing that we know can influence people's care experiences, but haven't really thought about from one experience to the next. So you mentioned this is really from one one caregiving experience to the next, so it's following a linear role. What happens when you're taking care of both parents at the same time because they're becoming frail? That was my situation. And you know, my dad was nine, almost 10 years older than my mom. So my over the course of their life, they always expect that dad would, would pass first. And he did, but mom was kind of short thereafter. But it wasn't in a linear process. It was, you know, you're hit with them, boom, like both at the same time. So that was, that I think a lot more people are going through today, but I could be wrong. Am I? No, I mean, I think you're not. We, we don't have wonderful data on this yet about this idea of multiple care experiences or how many care experiences people have as middle-aged adults or as older adults. This is something that I want to look at in the future. But just anecdotally from having talked to these caregivers in this study, Oftentimes it was people who were caring for both parents simultaneously or had cared for one parent and were now caring for another or were caring for one parent and were looking ahead to the future of for caring for another parent or a parent-in-law or a spouse, etc. And so these things are, it's almost like when you talk to caregivers, they do expect often that this is going to happen in the future. Oh, I know that I'll have to care for so-and-so. About 70% of our sample could name someone specific in their life who they knew looking forward they would have to care for in the future, who they had not already started caring for. Now, did they want to take care of those people? Did they want to step in or they're more like, oh, hell, I got to do this again? Yeah, <laughs> again, yeah, it was so different. There were some people and some people who were very surprising because those those questions about preparedness were at the end of the interview. So I had learned everything about what that person had experienced as the interviewer before getting to the point of saying, so do you want to do it again? Are you prepared to do it again? Do you feel confident? And everyone in this... I'm going to stop you there just a second, yeah. though, because you were talking about preparedness and, you know, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts were taught to, you know, how to be prepared for an emergency mm -hmm. or, or other situation, right? Or even going to going off to college for their first time. But this is a different kind of prepared. 
I mean, is that correct? We're talking about being prepared, emotionally prepared and ready to take on a challenge as opposed to knowing exactly what to do. Right. So that's one of the most important points that we found in this study is the difference between being prepared in terms of having learned like lessons or skills, how to navigate mm-hmm. certain things and being prepared in terms of your confidence, which is more of like feeling within you that you know that you can do a good job in the future, regardless of the skills that you've learned or haven't learned. And so we found that all of these caregivers could describe specific skills that they had learned, so specific things that they felt, okay, I know this now, I know how to navigate the healthcare system, I know how to navigate taking care of myself maybe, I know how to navigate an interpersonal relationship with the person who I'm caring for, I've kind of learned these skills. These are the specific things that I feel like I have taken away from the last care role. And so all everyone in our study could describe that. But some of the people, even though they had described specific skills or, or, or insights that they had gained, still said, I'm, I'm certainly not confident that I would do a good job in the future. Hmm. Whereas other people said, I certainly am confident. Look at all these skills. Look at all these things I've been through. I certainly am confident that I would do a good job in the future. So those people who described high confidence, we said that those people had, had boosted confidence after having cared for a person, a loved one in the past. And then those people who said, absolutely, there's no way. There's no way that I feel like I would do a good job in the future. We called those, we said, described that those people had impeded confidence, that their caregiving experiences in the past actually impeded their confidence in being a caregiver again in the future. Sort of contrary to, again, the societal idea that once you've done it, of course, you'll be better at doing it again. These people felt like, no, not at all. Uh, so I'm going to switch over to you, Amanda, because since you're dealing with some of the emotional aspects as well, I'm curious whether you've addressed the points of sort of the A-plus personalities, the super perfectionist versus the person who will just say, you know, okay is good enough, and how that comes into play from a psychological or an emotional sense of confidence and well-being to continue to move forward? I mean, is that something that you addressed? Emily, for the surveys um, ahead of time, did you include that in the in baseline surveys? Okay, so it it wasn't brought Uh, in. But it would be an interesting to think, you know, because we've all dealt with those people who are like, oh, you're the anal retentive, you know, A plus personality, everything is perfect. You know, you're Miss Martha Stewart, A plus plus (laughs) plus. of caregiving versus the, uh, I wouldn't say this, it, she's not around anymore, but the, the Julia Childs who can do the messy croquembouche and it looks beautiful. <laughs> Either way, you know, and, well, and it tastes good. Who cares? It looks perfect. We get the job done, right? That's a big part of it. I think it, that could be a factor in confidence moving forward or having impeded confidence. And we that wasn't a measurement we took. It's not a, me- I, a lot of uh, researchers do consider personality uh-huh. when considering emotion regulation. I haven't seen a lot of that in caregiving, but it's it could be something, especially in this category, to consider. There's, I mean, there's so much that goes into caregiving. There's no, it, you can't put it in a perfect little box and say this is what's going to happen time and time and time again. There's certainly patterns that happen over the course of caregiving with multiple people. But to say that you're going to have the same experience that I'm going to have because I'm dealing with a dad is not something that that happens, at least that I've seen, correct? Yeah. And especially in dealing with someone who has dementia or Alzheimer's, not only are there different social components on both ends and personalities, there's also different neuropsychological symptoms that are presenting themselves and people can deal with those symptoms in different ways. Well, especially if they're personally lashing out at them. If they've got dementia and all of a sudden anger is one point, and now you're feeling if you're working really hard and all of a sudden mom tells me that I'm a witch, to be polite on public air. But 
<laughs> which I was called once or twice or more than twice. But <laughs> yeah, it gets very emotional and personal and it's hard to divide out. Especially if you had a good relationship with that parent, right? Or if, or if you didn't, hard. and then it feels even more, more personal. You know, that's typical mm. of something they would say, even if it, if it isn't, if it's the disease. But within impeded confidence, there was also a group who had conditions about taking care of someone in the future. I could take care of someone if they didn't have these symptoms. I could take care of someone oh. if they did have these symptoms. Because some people living with dementia or Alzheimer's, they might have very elated feelings and be very positive all the time. And that could be easy for some caregivers and that could be difficult for some caregivers. It can be very rewarding to do so and do well and see somebody who is frail and impaired respond in a positive way, even if it's not apparent. So there is, there's certainly that aspect of caregiving that, that can, I say, fuel you forward, even though you're kind of alone in this, because we are. Did you find, Emily, that caregivers from a preparedness perspective were felt like they were doing this alone or and, and if so, were they ready to do it alone again? And obviously that varied from person to person, but the loneliness factor, because even if you've got family, it still typically falls on one adult child to be the lead at some point. Yeah, and that system kind of works, right? It's it's often difficult to have multiple people be the leading leaders simultaneously. And so it's we sort of naturally corporate or not, you can't have two co CEOs and do exactly. it really well. We or three. sort of I mean, naturally fall work. into these yeah. pyramids of yeah. somebody has to kind of be taking the initiative. So yeah, I think that this is one of the things that we heard often is people who appreciated that they had support because of the benefits that support can offer. It can help you make decisions when decisions are hard. It can help you to cover different aspects of care when you can't do it all, right? So there was these positive things and those in some cases were skills that or, or insights that people had learned about caregiving. So now I know better how to rely on my support system. Now I'm even gonna integrate them earlier. That's a lesson I've learned, helps me feel more prepared. But then you had other caregivers who were on the opposite side of the spectrum who said, I'm glad that I didn't have siblings because they would have made a mess of things. So I'm actually, I actually have learned now that I can do it alone and that I don't need to try to involve other people. And so when I do it again, I'm going to do it alone again. And both perspectives are fine. And this is sort of the other kind of main angle that we took with this paper is from my research, I do a lot of work on people's personal narratives from lived experiences. And so it's mm -hmm. not just what happened to you, it's how you feel about it and how you create a story of it that you tell to yourself and to other people as you go forward in life. And so either of those narratives is true. If you felt like having support from your siblings was helpful and that would be helpful again, then that's the truth of the matter. That's how you felt and it's valid. And so that might be helpful for you as a perspective going into a future care role. At the same time, if you have a narrative where you think, I was okay doing it solo and it was actually better for that reason, that narrative might then support good actions as a caregiver again in the future. But then in between that, there are more unhelpful narratives where you say, my siblings were so difficult to work with, no one could ever help me, there's no way that I can get support, no one would ever be able to understand what I'm going through, and those narratives might be more harmful in terms of that individual seeking the support that they might need in the future. So while a lot of these narratives can be really helpful to us, no matter what the narrative is, in some cases I'm predicting that it can lead to harm when it sort of forces people or encourages people to close out support that they really do need. So you talked about this narrative ending up and can being potentially harmful. When somebody passes, it's like, boom, it's done. 
and your job is done as a caregiver. There, Yeah, there's tons of things that you need to do. I call it the afterlife caregiver because there is a lot to do after somebody has passed and it can sometimes last several years, but it's not the same as physically doing the care work itself. Did you find that there was a certain level of either resentment from those that didn't support them, even though they did decide to go forward, you know, they did things on their own, or just plain burnout and exhaust. And oh, I'd say, you know, it's done. It's like, now what do I do kind of thing? You know, where's my sense of purpose at this point? Because it's gone mm -hmm. other than work or whatever the rest of your life is. And there's where the people who I think that might feed into the people who felt a sense of boosted confidence who were saying like, not only do I think I can do it again, but I kind of want to do it again. I'm ready. And then again, that came from some people who I was surprised by. I heard their whole story across the interview. And at the end, I was asking, so how do you feel in terms of being prepared to be a caregiver again? And they were like, sign me up. I'm ready, <laughs> you know. Huh. And for some of the people, it was quite shocking because their experiences were challenging. And in some cases, they were people who portrayed themselves as not natural caregivers, not naturally caring people. But they had learned through their experience that they were really fit to the role. They had learned that they loved the role. And so we talking about that sense of purpose, some of them in a very positive way had taken on this sense that, yeah, part of my one of the small pieces of purpose in my life was was being this caregiver and I am ready to do it again. At the same time, again, you found other people on the other end of the spectrum who said, I'm so burnt out now, I can't picture a time when I'm not going to feel this burnout. And so I can't picture a time when I'm prepared to take on a new role. Ooh, that's kind of a dark space. Yeah, those were people who even might have been natural caregivers or even might have had better resources or whatever. But they approached that question with, yeah, I don't, I've learned a lot. There were a lot of insights. I feel more prepared in terms of the skills or the insights that I have. But yeah, I'm too burnt out to feel confident that I would do a good job again. Amanda, did you see that it was an either or, or that there was an in-between on those? There were, again, the kind of conditional impeded confidence. You know, I could do it under these conditions. Mm -hmm. People moving forward and there were... With a big but. It's okay, but. Yes, it's okay, but. You know, I know absolutely I can do this. It was hard, but I would do it for ABC people in the future. So there, there are about, you can break it down about four different ways between the most confident mm -hmm. to the least confident moving forward. And was there any difference between male caregivers and female caregivers? We wanted to consider um, gender differences. And so Emily in recruitment made a huge effort to make sure that our participants were just about equally male and female. We didn't find in this particular data set gender differences. That's surprising because the guys that who are caregivers, the men that I know who've been caring for people over time tend to not be the hands-on caregiver. There are few I've met and, and spoken with, but they tend to relinquish a lot of that hands-on work to their sisters or their mothers or some other female in the family, which I think is, you know, so this is sort of a bias that I may have, but it it seems to be human nature that that happens that the women are the typically the caregivers from children to parents to whatever the case may be. And then the guys go out and kill the mammoth and drag home the meat and we clean it up and <laughs> put a bandage on it. And and now it's our pet kind of thing. We're not eating it. But it was sort of see the scene that see the same on, on the caregiving front where they'll handle the finances, they'll handle the legal issues, but everything else that is more emotionally tied tends to be more female oriented. I, I 
I'm curious as to what happened when you said it was about even. Anything that sort of surprised you from the male hands-on caregivers? Gender differences definitely is a, in caregiving is something that needs to be studied further is really interesting. In this particular, for confidence moving forward, gender didn't seem to play a role. But Emily has a very rich data set. So Emily, I don't know if you want to talk about more where gender differences might be important. Did you find it that men got burned out at all? See, that, so that's the thing. And so it's interesting because you're right. On one hand, we did tend to find that men would more often fall, fall into certain care roles where they were taking care of financial things, taking care of health decision-making things, but that women were doing other, not always, but you tended to find, and when they did fall into those roles, it felt very comfortable for them to talk about, oh, you know me, I was, I was the financial guy. That was the role I had. We even had people talk about, we had a couple or we had- I didn't bathe mom. <laughs> <laughs> and we had many, we had several men talking about that that was the hardest thing for them to do was to have to do the bathing, toileting, or find somebody else to do it for them. Women also talked about that being difficult too, though, both both genders. And so I think for me as the interviewer and for us as the researchers, we sort of weren't too surprised when men said it, but maybe maybe we should have been equally sort of perceiving both a little more open to it. Because what I did found it, find is that I was surprised when men described what we, we what we called boosted confidence. And maybe I shouldn't be surprised by that, but it was a little bit more surprising than when women did. So the men who said, again, I'm not an I didn't find I didn't think of myself as a natural caregiver in my life, but having been through this role with my mom or my dad, I'm excited to do it again. I'm prepared to do it again. I feel good about it. That was a little bit surprising because they were men who you just don't picture acting that way. But that sort of showed us a little bit of our own bias, too, in terms of the ways people respond in these situations. Again, I think it's much more about the individual differences and the narrative that person builds than just the gender roles that they come in with, although that certainly plays an early role. On that note, because I'm curious on the gender, and, and I know you probably didn't dive into this more because it, was, it wasn't necessarily a gender study, but I'm wondering whether the men, men or women, how frequently they talked about it to people on the outside. Did you discuss that or ask that? Because from what I've seen, a lot of people may talk about caregiving, but in a very close protective group, a place where they feel safe with maybe other people who sort of pulled back the curtain and said, oh yeah, I'm kind of doing that too. Like, what are you saying? And it's slowly the curtain opens up and then you talk about it, but it's not something like you bring to work and say, oh, I had one hell of a weekend. You know, mom just like, you know, did whatever. Or dad flew off the handle on and then just, or I spent, you know, the entire weekend in the ER with him because he fell. Now I don't know what to do. Tends not to be a discussion outside of those, I call them safe spaces, right? Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things we were finding, and it's sort of a replication from other research that has already showed that caregivers, especially caregivers for persons with dementia, they like to share their lessons learned with other people. But again, you're right, in those safe spaces, not just with a coworker. But in the safe, I said in the safe spaces, not with other people who may not be going through that or may not or have already gone through it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not everyone, but it's certain people do. Not only are they willing to share their experiences, either at the time or afterwards, but they're also enthusiastic, too, because they're like, I've learned these things. I want to pass pass this knowledge on to others. But again, within those safe spaces where they feel like it's a close friend or they know someone's really going through hell and they need and they need support. I'm like just the the loud mouth. So I would <laughs> anybody listening, you know, who doesn't know me personally, 
will will probably be surprised that I told everybody and anybody from the people standing behind me at McDonald's to find out what they were doing to the guy at the grocery store to the to the woman at the the odd lot when I had to go buy a futon for the for the house of my parents so I had a place to sleep you know it's like do you know what's going on can you believe this this is what's not with myself but just in general and the stories that came out when I started like flapping my trap here was just amazing that all of a sudden they said, well, here's this loudmouth. I'm going to share it too. It was kind of fun to hear what other people were saying and how um, either enthusiastic or irate they were at certain situations that were happening in society in general about caregiving or, or the health and hospital systems. And certainly I think that for the caregiver, they want to share these lessons, insights, experiences in order to help others. But I also think there's that secondary goal of just sharing so that they can say, like, can you believe that this happened to me? Can you believe that I had... Or to learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to... Yeah. I, I mean, it was a learning... Everybody pre- presented something else that came along and mm-hmm. it's like, oh, my God, I didn't know that. Yep. And the amount of information that came out of the woodwork was totally surprising. And this goes back to some of sort of the tenets of from the narrative and memory, autobiographical memory literature we think about sort of core reasons that people even remember their lives or share their narratives of their lives. There's only really three main reasons that people even have autobiographical memory systems or create narratives. It's just the simply, first of all, to maintain a sense of who you are. I need a story of myself to understand who I am. Second of all, sort of validating that you're here for yeah, a purpose I'm here, type of thing. I exist and I exist for this reason and this is who I've, this is who I've become based on who I've been in the past. So that's the first thing. We call it the self-continuity function. The second is a directive function. So if I can think back to what I've experienced in my life, I can direct my behaviors or sort of guide my decisions going forward. Um, but the third is what you're referring to, which is the social function. I'm thinking, I have, I retain narratives of my life in order to teach and inform other people, but also in order to understand more about their lived experiences so that we can just have that connection through sharing our stories. And so I feel like caregivers really do lean into that in those safe spaces, or maybe Nancy, not so much for you, maybe at the McDonald's, but (laughs) but anywhere where it's just like... I'm the talking billboard. it It is this core function of ours to share with others on this social level so that we can learn more about ourselves, so that we can learn about other people, so that we can develop empathy, so that we can teach and inform. There's a lot of smaller reasons, but it comes down to humans want to share their experiences. And I was so amazed how willing perfect strangers were to partake in my interview because they wanted to share their experiences. And they wanted to not only tell me so that they could teach me, which I was grateful for, but they also just wanted to get it out there. And by the end of the interview, I often felt like the participants had the sense of relief of like, thank you for letting me share my story because it's my story and it's important and I haven't really been able to say it start to finish to anyone before. Um, so that was certainly a, a really precious part of doing this research, yeah. We learn so much by other people's stories that people who've gone before us, people that are there at our sides, left, right, front, back. And they say, you know, life is a story. I guess that's kind of trite, but that's that's how we make it, you know, a rich experience. And so I'm going to ask you before we sign off, are there three things that, that you could say we could each, anybody listening could take from this and apply going forward? Yeah, I think that's a great question. The, the first thing that I would say is that as Amanda and I and, and our team have been pursuing this question about how caregiving experiences prepare you to be a caregiver again, as we've talked to other people in the field, very, very smart people, they sort of have these assumptions 
as we talk into people in society, they sort of have these assumptions, mostly people who are not caregivers and who have never been caregivers. They assume that if you've been a caregiver before, necessarily you're better at and more prepared to be a caregiver again. And I just want to acknowledge that that might not be true for everyone. And so when we think about the ways to support caregivers, we don't need to, we should not exclude the people who we feel should already be prepared and not need our resources because they've done it before. And I've like I've started to think of it as, you know, maybe those those caregivers have been through caregiving 101. Sure, they have some of the basics, but that doesn't mean they don't need 201 or 301. They don't need more support from us in more nuanced, specialized ways. And so there's certainly opportunities for us to come in and provide more support and more nuanced support, particularly to support the confidence of the people who feel like I am burnt out. I do have low confidence. I don't think I can do it again. So there's certainly more to be done than to just say they should know what they're doing. They've done it before. And I, and again, I've heard this. Employers listen up to this <laughs> one, right? Yeah, big time. Um, so that would be my first takeaway. Amanda, do you have another one to jump in with? No, I think that's the most important one, Emily, is just that confidence sounds like a very positive word and impeded confidence sounds negative, but that's not most importantly, Emily's work is really trying to get at. Even though you're confident doesn't mean you don't need support moving forward. And just because you aren't confident moving forward um, to care for someone else again, we need support to help people, you know, really process their past experience caregiving and give them skills and strengthen their second attempt or their fourth attempt at caregiving. So I know those sound like positive and negative words, but we think that caregivers need continual support as they continue caring for different people throughout their lives. It's not a one and done, in other words. Is that correct, Amanda? Yeah. And another thing is to circle back to the personality that might be interesting and also just the baseline relationship that you have with someone might be important to consider moving forward and how your relationships change as you're caring, especially an adult child caring for their parent. Those relationship factors and that emotional connection is important to consider. And hopefully Dr. Monin's work is considering attachment theory and adult child and parent relationships and how that informs coping together with dementia. Just because you, you had a bad relationship growing up with a parent doesn't mean that it can't get better when somebody's got dementia because the personality can change so radically it could be an experience. to a point yeah. where it, they can be a positive person where you had a bad relationship. It's it's interesting to see that as well. Yeah, and we had caregivers in this study and I know in other studies too who talked about caregiving as a real blessing for them to repair difficult relationships with their parents or with, you know, in this case, their parents, but also with other members of the family. So it can be an opportunity in that way. Yeah, it can be a gift, actually, yeah, right? Totally. If you want to consider dementia a gift, at least if nothing else, when they pass you, you feel better about yourself and about your mom or your you dad. You have much more of a rich, you know, it's there's there's been quality that's really been added to your relationship through that care experience. Yeah, I think Amanda's just right. I think there's so much to be done to learn about and to support people who have been caregivers before and are considering or, or engaging in caregiving again. And there's so many big domains of psychological and public health kind of areas to look into. So again, my perspective here is a narrative perspective. I'm big on the ways that people construct narratives of past experiences. But Amanda's right, looking at social dynamics and relational dynamics, looking at personality dynamics that are brought into the, each caregiving role, these are huge areas that are not being investigated when we're talking about these experienced caregivers, people who have done it before and who are either thinking about or engaging in doing it again. And so I think the other thing that I would say, mainly to researchers, but 
is to take that multidisciplinary perspective, to look at this from all different angles, because we basically haven't looked at it at all, to look at personality, to look at narrative, to look at social dynamics, to look at all of these different factors that come into play when you're taking your lived experience as a caregiver and using them to understand your preparedness in in, in current or future care roles. I would say maybe in conclusion that if you are, and correct me, Emily and Amanda, if, if I'm wrong, that just because you've done it once doesn't mean that you're going to do it better the second time around or that you're going to love doing it the second time around. You might like it better, you might like it worse, and that's okay. There is no perfect sense of emotion when it comes to caregiving, other than it can be stressful physically, emotionally, and financially, because round two, it's a whole nother cost level. Mom or dad may have run out of the funds with with round one. Then what do you do? Because you're like, you know, SOL, (laughs) you're up a creek, and... Medicaid may not be able to take care of everything. So I think you're just right. So on a positive note, you've done it. You've done it once. You survived. (laughs) And guess what? You will survive again. Yeah, you're just right. I think this maybe we could call this the third lesson that I would encourage people to take away from this work is caregivers should not be hard on themselves or should not have expectations of themselves just because they've been a caregiver before. Certainly, please tap into the resources you have built having been a caregiver before, because in some ways you are an expert and in some ways you carry very valuable insights. But certainly do not beat yourself up. Caregivers are just so prone to beating themselves up in these roles. It's so difficult and it's so tough to hear caregivers who are really self-deprecating because they they feel guilty. They ruminate about what they could have done better or differently. And so my big bottom line is I encourage all caregivers to to know that you are doing your best. And even if you've done this type of thing before, even if you've been a caregiver before, that does not give you all the magic solutions to doing a perfect job, whatever that even would look like as a caregiver again. So the best you can, try to tap into those narratives that might help to empower you from your former care roles, but certainly don't expect that you're going to be um, coming up with all the magic answers just because you've been a caregiver before. And societally, we shouldn't expect that of caregivers either. No, I think we have to sort of chill out a little bit and say there is no such thing as perfection. It's it's okay. There's a new color and just a, a different way of looking at things round two, three, or even four. So thank you, Emily and Amanda. I really appreciate the work that you've done. For everybody listening, I've got a copy of the research results study, which will be in the show notes. And this is the first announcement. So one of the things that we're going to be looking at doing fairly shortly is to create a private group for those who are caring for somebody that they love, where it's just a a place to go and get positive support. There's so much negative out there, negativity out there in the caregiver environment. And we need a place to be able to feel good and know that stress is going to happen But ultimately, at the end of a short conversation, we just feel just a little bit better. If you're interested, you can let me know, and I'll send some information out. And then finally, if you love this show, and I hope you do, or all the other shows before it, the best gift that you can give to other caregivers and your friend is a link to the show. It's pretty simple, and it doesn't cost you a dime. So that's it from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. We'll see you soon, or as I like to say, we'll hear you soon. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. 
For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Caremanity LLC. 